Let us pray. Holy, holy, holy Lord God of hosts. Has it really come down to this? Are these the battle lines for the journey that yet awaits us? Holy Father, through Holy Scripture, teach us this morning, we pray. We must know the truth. And may the truth set us free. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 485 years ago, two days ago. All right? You've got to do the arithmetic. 485 years ago, two days ago. A young Saxon monk boldly strode across an autumn-strewn campus, not unlike our own, fire in his eyes, a parchment clutched in his fist. Nobody noticed him. That quaint little university town called Wittenberg, nobody noticed him as the square-jawed, tonsure-haired young priest named Martin Luther stepped up to the university church doors and with a hammer and a nail, he pounded up a bold, frontal challenge. In fact, 95 challenges, as a matter of fact. Challenges to a worship that had become shamefully corrupted and tragically broken. It was about worship that Martin Luther nailed up those 95 theses. I'll never forget the day when my boy, our boy Kirk, I don't know, 10, 8 years old, came running home from school one day and over supper he, he was so excited he announced to us that the, that the teacher that day had taught them all about Martin Luther and how he had nailed up the 95 species. Those are not species. Those were, in fact, 95 bold challenges. You know, and because they concern worship, I have to kind of wonder out loud with you, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be the enigma of the ages? I mean, the enigma of all time. If this apocalyptic movement that has been raised up to carry on the Reformation that Martin Luther began, wouldn't it be the enigma? You say, wait a minute, hold it, Dwight. Time out, time out. What are you talking about? Some movement raised up to carry on the Reformation. Well, I want to tell you something I have here in my Bible. In fact, I carry this with me everywhere I go in this Bible. I have a postcard right here. I bought this in Wittenberg, Germany. I'm going to tell you, for me, it might not be that way for you, and some of you perhaps have been there. But for me, I'm telling you the truth, it, it, it was a religious experience to stand in front of that university church door. Now, the door subsequently, after Martin Luther burned down, and so it is a new door, so to speak. But to stand in front of that door and realize that the fires of the mighty Reformation were ignited with that hammer that in the nail to those 95 theses. 
1517, 485 years plus two days ago. So anyway, I have this, I bought this postcard. In fact, I want to put it on the screen here. It's a, it, it's the painting of, of Lucas Cranach, one of the great Reformation painters. And you can, can you see it there? Martin Luther is preaching in the Stadtkirche. This is the city church where he preached every Sunday. And in between Martin Luther and the audience, you see Jesus Christ lifted up. I've determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So I have this postcard and I carry it with me everywhere. But on the back of the postcard, I have copied these words. Let me read these words to you from the apocalyptic classic called Great Controversy. Here are the words. The Reformation did not, as many suppose, end with Luther. It is to be continued to the close of this world's history. Luther had a great work to do in reflecting to others the light which God permitted to shine upon him. Yet he did not receive all the light which was to be given to the world. From that time to this, get this, new light has been continually shining upon the Scriptures and new truths have been constantly unfolding, end quote. Whoa. I mean, have mercy. Do you understand that on the basis of that single line, the suggestion is made that you and I, nobodies as we are, yet you and I are somehow enlisted in propagating the mighty reformation that Martin Luther himself began. Wow. So it leads me to say, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be the saddest enigma of all if this movement that was raised up to draw the intellectual and spiritual attention of the world to the, to the crosshairs, fiery core issue of the battle between good and evil. You say, wait a whole time. Hey, wait a minute. Do I stop again? What do you mean the crosshairs of this cosmic battle between good and evil? Well, I remind you, from the very beginning of time, worship has been fought over. On this planet. In fact, when that serpent came to Eve, Eve and he hissed. What did he hiss? Worship me and you will be like God. Worship from the very beginning of this bloody battle for the allegiance of the human race. You want to go to the middle of the battle? Go to the middle. When the incarnate God himself comes to earth and the same serpent comes up to him with his hissing temptation. What is the temptation Lucifer brings? All of this, Jesus, I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. I want that worship. The battle is over worship. Go all the way to the end of time and you have one lone midnight angel leading this threesome. One angel streaking across across the heavens. And what's the cry of the one angel? Revelation 14, verse 7, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth a sea and the fountains of waters. Worship. <laughs> battle in the beginning. Battle in the middle. Battle at the end. Worship has been in the crosshairs from the very beginning, this battle between good and evil. So, I... Again, ask out loud to you, wondering, wouldn't it be the enigma of enigmas if this apocalyptic movement that has been raised up to bring worship front and center in the consciousness of a final generation, wouldn't it be sad? Wouldn't it be the ultimate tragedy, this worship movement that is so sure, and it is properly Correct. So sure about the day of worship. 
Oh my, this apocalyptic movement has memorized every text in Holy Scripture. That is clarion confirmation that the Seventh-day Sabbath is the Creator's day even at the end of time. But wouldn't it be sad, so sure about the day of worship, that we end up missing the way of worship? Because you can be right about when, but if you're wrong about how, you'll still be lost in the end. You can have the when down right, but if you're wrong about the how, you're still lost in the end. And that's why it would be sad. Oh, Dwight, are we all going to be lost then? No. Same apocalyptic classic. I, oh, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for these words. Put them on the screen. Before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, there will be... Promise there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. Wow. The Spirit and power of God will be poured out upon His children. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Somebody may get it wrong, but there's going to be somebody at the end that not only knows the day, but knows the way of worship. And the thought occurs to me, ladies and gentlemen, here at Andrews University in the Pioneer Memorial Church, the thought occurs to me, why not you and me be the ones to rekindle a reformation for the way, the way of worship? Because the reformation isn't over. Open your Bible, please, to the Bible's last book, to the Apocalypse. Go back. Revelation, we go back. This is part seven in our series, The Revealing. Six times now, we've seen the face of Jesus. Six times we've been looking for the face of Jesus, but this time, no, 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 we're not going to even look for Him a single moment. You know why? There is another face. In fact, we'll call this The Revealing, part seven. The other face upon the throne. We're looking, at, talking about a riddle. We are looking for a face that cannot be seen. We are now going to look for a face that cannot be seen. But unless we see the seventh face, we will never win the battle. In the crosshairs of the final struggle between good and evil, we will never win that battle over worship. So open your Bible. Not to Revelation 1. Wow, we finally have broken out of the confines of Revelation 1. Go to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. Whatever Bible you have is... Fine with me. Didn't bring a Bible. There's the New King James right in front of you. But I'm going to preach out of the New Revised Standard Version today. Revelation chapter 4. Pick it up. Verse 1. Revelation 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Who's that first voice? Remember, remember I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day? And then I heard a voice behind me. Who did the voice belong to? Did he find out eventually? The risen, resurrected, risen Christ. So it's the same, it's still Jesus. Christ now is speaking to him. I heard this voice behind me like a trumpet. And notice what the voice said. The voice said to me, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. Verse 2. And at once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne. Hit the pause button right there. There stood a throne. Let's do this. Do you remember doing this when you were a kid? Your mother wanted you to listen all the way through the preacher's sermon. You remember that? So she picked God, Jesus, faith. And she said, all right, son, now you just count every time the preacher says those words. Did you, did you ever do that? Yeah, we all did it. Let's do it today. Because we have some boys and girls here and some grown-up boys and girls. Let's... I want you to count 
Every time the word throne appears, put it out, just write it on the boat. Don't let anybody see you doing it because you don't want to act that interested, but just kind of just count them. How many times in this single chapter does the word throne appear? All right, let's find out. We'll go back to, uh, let's pick this up in verse. Oh, and also look for the, look for the word face. Remember the title of our teaching today is the other face upon the throne. So look for the word face, look for the word throne. All right. Go back to verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. Verse 3. And the one seated there looks like Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones are 24 elders dressed in white robes with, with golden crowns on their heads. Verse 5. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumbles, rumbles, rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. Verse 6. And in front of the throne there is something like a sea of glass-like Around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face like a human being, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside and day and night. Without ceasing they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God the Almighty who was and is and is to come in verse 9 whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever the 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever they cast their crowns before the throne singing you are worthy our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created we just read an entire chapter through the Bible now two words we're looking for how many times did you find the word face once. It was only there once. And the one word for face, it's not even the face of God. It's the face of one of those angelic beings. All right? Let's go to, let's go to throne. How many times does the word throne or its derivative appear in that single passage? Same amount of times in the Greek and the uh, English, by the way. How many times did you count? Fourteen. Go to the head of the class. Look at that. And you're not even a theology major. How'd you do that? All right. Fourteen times. In fact, the Greek word for throne is pranos. From whence comes our English word throne. Isn't that something? This word that appears in 16 of the 22 chapters of the Apocalypse, by the way, 14 times in this single chapter. Do you know why? Because in this single chapter, the solitary theme is worship. The worship of God. And worshiping God always means bowing before His throne. In fact, the old Anglo-Saxon word, you're not even going to be able to pronounce this, the old English, old Anglo-Saxon word for worship. Look at this. We are scripe. I mean, when's the last time you said that? We are scripe. It means to ascribe worth. Worth ascribe. The word worship means to ascribe veneration, to ascribe honor, to ascribe reverence. And in fact, the English, the English, God bless the English, they, would, they used to call their uh, nobles, your worthyship. You remember that? Your worthyship. 
What is it? That's the word worship. Worthyship. Worship is what you give to that which is worthy. You may give it to a thing if you worship your own success. You may give it to a person if you're stuck on a human being. Or you may give your ultimate veneration and honor to a being. Worship. Fourteen times. It's no wonder. Fourteen times. God is, God is depicted by the word throne. Fourteen. It's no wonder that when the elders, they want to bow, they take their crowns. And they say, hey, I am not worthy to wear this. I throw my crown at your feet. That says you alone are worthyship. I worship you, worthyship one. Wow, 14 times. What's John's point? Worshiping God always means bowing before His throne. Which, by the way, is precisely why Revelation 4, this chapter that we are only faintly being able to visualize right now, which is why Revelation chapter 4 begins with the words, Come up here. Come up here to what? Come up here, the voice says in verse 1. Come up here. I wish there were a way for us... Oh, man, I wish, I, I, wish, I wish this were Hollywood right now. I wish we had some special effects geniuses in, in this audience right now who could put something on the screen for us to visualize what we just read in Revelation 4. What we, we've got artists. Yeah, I mean, the artists don't do too bad. Take a look at some of these pictures of heaven. How do you like that? Would you like heaven to look like that? Well, it's not too bad. I mean, you know, I could be happy in a place like that, couldn't you? It's like, let's take a look at another one. Ooh, there's another artist portrait. I don't know if I like the domes. Do you like those gold domes? I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Makes me think of Notre Dame, and so I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, let's look at another one. Oh, I kind of like that. I could be happy in that city. Heaven. You know, I have a friend named Stu Hardy, and he used to work in Hollywood. Now, this is the truth. He worked with some of the top flight uh, directors like Steven Spielberg. He's worked with him editing. You know, if, if Stu were here, I said, Stu, do some, do some creative wizardry. Let's see some special effects. Let's watch heaven come alive. I wonder what Hollywood could do with this concept of heaven. Oh, I'm sure that when they come to that moment, when they want to lift this great white throne, some sort of supernatural hydraulic straight up into the heavens and this being in ineffable glory we can't even see now john does actually describe the throne in, in uh, revelation chapter 20 at the end of the apocalypse john says then i saw a great white throne and the one who sat on it and the earth and the heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them but you see with special effects, you could describe, the, you could portray the throne, you could even picture heaven. But notice this, ladies and gentlemen, nobody, nobody in the whole book, check it out, nobody describes the being on that throne. No language. They don't even try. John doesn't say a word. He just keeps saying, throne, 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 code word, God, God, God. He will not describe for us the being. Now, is it because John was not allowed to? Shh, don't write that down. Or was it because John was not shown? Probably the latter. He's just not shown. John, concentrate on the throne. 
14 times. He's taking mental notes, notes as he, as he's watching this video vision playing in his mind. 14 times. Throne, 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 throne. Why? Because the solitary theme in this single chapter clearly is worship. And worshiping God always means coming before His throne. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, that's worshiping God the Father. You notice there's not a word about Jesus in this chapter. Nothing. Oh, don't miss next week. Next week, the face of the slaughtered lamb. That's next week. There is no mention of Jesus in Revelation 4. It's just the Father, front and center. We're not told, we're not told a thing about Him, except that He has a throne. And the words at the beginning of the chapter are clear. Come up here. I want to come back to that come up in just a moment. But first, as pastor of this university, I'm going to ask you a question now, and I need you to be brutally honest with this question. I don't want you to answer it out loud, but I want you to, with integrity, respond in your mind to this question. And here's the question. Do we worship well at Andrews University and the Pioneer Memorial Church? Hmm? What is the state of worship on this campus and in this congregation? Now, look, folks, I'm not inquiring about private worship. No, 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 no. John does that. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. God knows we, in order to live successfully, we must worship privately. Yeah, you've got to have private worship. But the question today is about public, corporate, communal worship. Do we worship well on this campus? Do we worship well in our dormitory worships? The ones you're required to attend? Do we worship well in the chapels that are conducted in this very sanctuary? Do we worship well in the Vesper services that take place on these very precincts on a Friday night? Do we worship well in our classroom devotionals, in our, in our committee, our office, our departmental worships? Do we worship well on a Sabbath morning in the Pioneer Memorial Church or over in New Life? Do we worship well in this place? And if we worship well, then why is there such a furor over required worship on this campus? What's the problem? If we worship well, it's clear we were created to worship. Everything within us longs to worship. In fact, I found these words, A.W. Tozer, one of the great mid-20th century evangelical writers, listen to this, man, and that would include woman, was made to worship God. God gave man a harp, I like the metaphor, and said, here, above all creatures that I have made and created, I have given you the largest harp. I've put more strings on your instrument. I've given you a wider range than I've given any other creature. You can worship me in a manner that no other creature can. But when man sinned, man took that instrument and threw it down in the mud, and there it has lain for centuries, rusted, broken, unstrung. And man, instead of playing a harp like the angels and seeking to worship God in all his activities, is ego-centered and turns in on himself and sulks and swears and laughs and sings, but it's all without joy and without worship. Tozer concludes worship is the missing jewel 
We're organized. We work. We have our agendas. We have almost everything. But there's one thing we have lost. And that is the ability to worship. We are not cultivating the art of worship. It's the one shining gem that is lost. And I believe we ought to search for this until we find it. End quote. That's pretty, that's pretty heavy. Is it the one gem that's missing on this campus? Worship. Genuine worship. You know, could it be, ladies and gentlemen, that somehow we become confused about the directions of, uh, the, the, the direction for worship? I mean, there is no confusion here in Revelation chapter 4. The direction is clear. Read verse 1 again. After this I looked. And there in heaven a door stood open, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. You get that? John says, I looked, and I saw an open door, and I heard a voice coming from the other side of the door. The door is in heaven, right? The door isn't to the church. The door is in heaven. And I heard a voice saying, Come up here. Clearly, the direction in Revelation 4, the direction is vertical, is it not? Is it not vertical? Oh, you're just sitting there, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's vertical. But given the way we worship sometimes in this place and on this campus, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? It makes you wonder if we think the voice is saying, Come in here. Come in. Come in horizontal. Come in. Because you know what? That's what we keep saying to each other. We say, look, come in here. We'll do it better for you. Come in here to our new dorm worships and see if we don't hold your attention more now. Come in here to our newly revamped chapels and we'll make worship time fly so that you won't even know you're worshiping. Come in here to new life and you'll be so excited you want to come back. Come in here to our Adventist synagogue services and we'll be so ancient you'll revel in our antiquity. Wow. Come in here to Sabbath expressions and we'll do it so differently you'll tell all your friends about us. Come in here and hear the sermon, please. Come, come in, come in. We have confused the direction of worship. We have thought worship means come in here, horizontal, when in fact, according to Revelation 4, worship is come up here, vertical. And there is a world of difference, is there not? Man. Verse 1, After this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. Have we made worship... Look, look. Have we made worship that which happens on a stage when in fact worship is that which happens before a throne? Huh? Come in here. Look at our stage. Come in to us. When in fact, the cry of worship is, Come up to me. No, come in to us. We'll get you to come back. No, 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 no. It won't matter what happens on the stage if you're going to the throne and not the stage. Please don't misunderstand me. I don't want anybody to go out of here thinking that somehow this is a plea to abandon creativity and innovation in worship planning and worship providing. It is not. I know that we live, we live in a media-saturated world and the competition for the human attention is fierce. 
hastily, hastily thrown together worship services are a disservice to God and a disappointment to the rest of us. Perhaps it has been the lack of planning and providing that have made required worships at chapels or dormitories onerous to some. And I thank God for the creativity of our student leaders and our chaplains and our deans and others that they display in worship from time to time. However, the thundering worship invitation from the open door of heaven here in Revelation chapter 4 is a somber reminder that worship is not about gathering before a stage down here. It is rather about bowing before a throne up there. That's where worship goes. Vertical, not horizontal. After this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you. Come up here. You know what, folks? If only, if only we could hear those words wherever, whenever we gathered corporately to worship. If we would just hear the words, Come up here now. Glad you're all together. Shake hands, smile, greet each other. But come up here. Come up here. I have a feeling that if we remember those words, the most frequent public complaint and criticism I receive about worships, worship services in this sanctuary or on this campus would no longer be a reality. Oh, and by the way, it's not just the, come on, it's not just the complaint about this sanctuary, it's the complaint about churches all across the land. But you know, I, when, when I receive written complaints from visitors or members about their worship experience here, the predominant observation, okay, Hands down, if they're going to complain about worship, it's this. You people are too noisy and irreverent. What's up with that? I mean, they're, they're writing. You know, they, they, they're suggesting, you, must, you, you people talk out loud as if it were a ball game you were waiting to begin. You people must figure the organ prelude is background music because we've noticed that the louder the organ gets, the louder you get. Why are they writing this? You people. You bring your textbooks to chapel. And there in the pew, you study and cram for a final exam or hurry to finish an uncompleted assignment as if being in the presence of God Almighty meant nothing to you at all. You people. You sit with your arms wrapped around each other, blowing bubbles, passing kisses, and whispering sweet little nothings through the entire service, not realizing that you are a total distraction to everybody sitting around you. What's up with you people? You laugh, you eat, in boredom, you mark up a hymnal or tear up a tithe envelope, or you sleep. No, you don't sleep here, do you? Do you really? Oh, okay. What is this? You people, you let your children after church run the aisles as if this were a recess playground. You people. You leave your cracker candy and gum wrappers as if this were McDonald's. When I get these letters, you know, and I do get them from time... No, not every day, you understand. But when I get these letters from time to time, the writers even have the audacity to ask if we understand that, that we're in the presence of Almighty God. And of course, I get defensive. I mean, I want to just shoot back this little stinging letter right back to them. Let me tell you something. Boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. And grown-ups will be grown-ups sometimes. So what's the problem? Like I say, hey, listen, you ought to be thankful. We may not be perfect, but at least we're in worship. We could stay home, you know. I would put that last line in, but I'm afraid they would write back and say, wish you had. 
Then I reflect. I reflect on how God's closest friends He ever had on earth, how they responded whenever they were in His presence. And I think to myself, oh boy, you really, boy, you have forgotten what it means to come into the presence of God. I mean, come on, ladies and gentlemen, look, right through that door right now with all the secret service. I mean, he was just here two days ago. I'm talking about President George W. Bush. If George W. Bush came walking through that door right now, oh, this place would be hushed. We would stand to our feet. Why? Because the press are calling him the most powerful man on earth these days. Wow! George, we would stand even though we weren't Republicans. We would stand. <laughs> Why? Because the man represents position. He represents power. He represents, he represents prominence. And the very office itself commands from us respect. I mean, you would, they'd all be go walking up to him chewing, blowing bubble gum, come up and shaking, how are you, Mr. Bam? I mean, you just wouldn't do it. In fact, if the president came to you, he's coming down the aisle, I want to, I want to know your name. You know, you, uh, 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 John, you know, you, why? Because we're awed. We're awed by power. We're awed by position. Hey, wait a minute. Who is this? We have come into this building to meet today. Did you come to a stage or have we come to a throne? The eternal, almighty, sovereign majesty who with a beckon of his fingers a billion galaxies simultaneously under his control, but he has the gumption to come down here and say where two or three of you are gathered in my name. I'm here. Oh, wow. I mean, if we remembered it is God's house, how would we honor him? I mean, I'm thinking about his friends now. I'm thinking about Moses. <laughs> Crackly, burning bush that is not being consumed. And all of a sudden, boom, like breaking the sound barrier. Boom, I am that I am. And boom, he is on his face, groveling in the dust. Moses, who got closer to God than any other human being. I'm thinking about Peter in the New Testament. Peter, when he sees these slimy, silvery bulgings to his tearing fishnet, knows he's in the presence of divinity, and he falls to that stinking skiff floor, and he worships Jesus. Peter. I'm thinking about John, who just four chapters back, you remember John, who hears a voice, and when he turns around, he sees it is his best friend he's ever had. It is Jesus, but it is Jesus in all His glory. And John faints dead away as if he's gone. I'm thinking about Daniel. Ditto. Same response as John. Only for Daniel. Daniel is so nervous. Just like you'd be. He can't even breathe. And Daniel says, my breath was gone. I could not even breathe. I was in His presence. I'm thinking about Isaiah. Isaiah just going to second church. That's all he was doing. I mean, he's just feeling bad. Condition in the nation is rather upsetting there in Isaiah 6. And he said, I decided to go to church. And while Isaiah is in the pew in church and he's watching the, the preacher or the priest on the stage, suddenly, miraculously, supernaturally, it's as if you're, you're watching the final curtain that's being raised one last time. And as he watches, that curtain goes up and in dumbfounded, stunned fear, he sees 
the throne that even Hollywood can't picture. And when he sees the throne, he said, Oh, no, oh, no, woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live in the middle of a people of unclean lips. He only went to church, but this particular day God raised the curtain and he saw it's not a stage. It's a throne we have come to bow before. Wow. When you go to church, what is it you see? What is it I hear? Do we hear, come in here? Or do we hear the words, come up? Forget the stage. You don't even need the stage. Come up here to me. I want to end by sharing with you a beautiful, beautiful, simple custom I saw Japanese Christians do when I was growing up in Japan. You know, I lived there for 14 years. I saw this and I'm thinking, oh my, if only the East could come to the West. And I know what you're thinking, oh, come on, Dwight, don't you try to impose another culture upon us. I mean, we are West, they are East. And of course, you're right, my friend. You are absolutely right. In fact, I remember one Sabbath. I'll never forget that Sabbath morning as long as I live. Went with my mother, my brother, and my sister. We are gathered in the largest church in downtown Tokyo. It's called the Central Church in a place called Harajuku. We're in that church. My dad is going to preach up front, all right? So we're in the church. We're all now seated in the pew. And back then, you know, kids were instructed to keep total silence during those moments. I mean, you're dead if you speak. Times have changed. So anyway, we're sitting in the pew at the organ. I'm sorry, Ken. At the organ is an elderly woman playing, all right? She's at the organ. How could I possibly remember what she would be playing on that organ 40 years ago? Except I remember what she switched to in the middle of the prelude. Okay, so she's playing classical music. All of a sudden, I hear a tune that I know with all my heart. And as I hear that tune being played on a worship service organ, my little ten-year-old eyes about bug out. And I look down to the end of the pew where my mother is sitting, and I'm saying, Mom, I can't say a word. I'm saying with my eyes, what is she doing playing this in church? Because that dear lady had no idea of the Western connection that music would evoke that music would evoke in every American boy listening to it in church when she launched into another classical piece with great gusto. William Tell's overture. All I'm thinking about is Hio Silver. The Lone Ranger has come to church. And I'm trying so hard to be a good boy and worship God. And she's playing the Lone Ranger in church. <laughs> What's up with that? And my poor mother nearly dies of suppressed laughter. She said, so you're right. Okay, you're right. There are cultural differences. We don't always understand. But the beautiful, simple custom that I saw Japanese Christians practice and worship was not the theme to the Lone Ranger. 
It was instead. And I watched them Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath in churches all across that land. Half of America crowded into a state the size of California. I saw them. I watched them. Invariably, as soon as they entered into the sanctuary and they were seated in their pew, they would bow their heads and pray to God. Now, was it their Buddhist connection? Was it their Shintoist background? I doubt it. I didn't know what they were saying. I would just see them invariably to a man and woman bow their heads. I would, I would watch their lips moving. I could not hear a word. I don't know what they were praying. It could very well be they were praying the prayer of God's great friend who one day when he came to worship cried out, Oh God, I beseech you, show me your glory. Wow. Can you imagine the difference that quiet prayer would make on this campus if everywhere you and I went when we're gathered for worship, we would first, when we come in to the dormitory chapel, we would first bow and say, Oh God, I pray that You will show me Your glory. Every time we came from class into this sanctuary for chapel, we would bow our heads. The first thing we did when we sat in this wooden pew was, Oh God, I beseech You, Show me your glory. Every time we came to Sabbath expressions or any other worship service on, on the campus, we would bow our heads. Oh God, I beseech you, show me your glory. God, I know. God, I can see a stage. But dear God, I seek your throne. I have come in, dear God, but I long to come up. Oh God, I beg of you, show me your glory. You know what, ladies and gentlemen? How could worship ever be the same if we began it with the hunger not to see a stage, but to seek a throne? How could it ever be the same again? Oh God, show me Your glory, I pray. You know, for the life of me, for the life of me, I can't think of one reason why God wouldn't answer that prayer. So why not pray it with me? You saw us come in today. We knelt. Why does the service begin kneeling? I'm the only guy that has to do it every week. But I am so grateful I have to do it. Because when I do it, the distractions, you know, the, the, the accelerated pulse rate, am I going to get, you know, it, it just kind of, God says, wait a minute, Dwight, 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 what did you come here? Did you come to a stage? Or did you come to my throne? And when I pray, oh God, hide me so that only you and your throne can be seen. At least I'm reminded at the beginning why I worship in the first place.